So hey guys, we're back with another one. And uh, today we have a phenomenal gentleman who's written a new book. We're going to talk about his new book. And uh, it's out on, uh, you can find it on Amazon and booksellers near you. Before we do that, I want to thank my friends over the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. Uh, one year is 25, two years is 45, and three years is $60 for the subscription. Now, I urge everybody to do the three years because if you do year to year to year, you'll pay $15 more, and who doesn't like to save money? So you can get uh, the Epitaph to your door for three years for 60 bucks, and it's a newspaper, and it's Wild West history, and it's delivered right to your door. So if you want to subscribe, go to the tombstoneepitaph.com. I also want to thank my friends over at the Wild West History Association. They're actually my second family. Uh, you can learn more about them at wildwesthistory.org. Uh, you'll, you'll, for 75 bucks a year, you get the journal and you get true research, true provenance. It's all there for you in the journal. And it's actually like a book. It's a hundred plus pages of book and it shows up four times a year at the, at their house or your business, wherever you want. And uh, it's just a great way to get to know historians and researchers. And you get to come to our roundup. Our roundup 2023 is going to be in San Antonio, Texas. So you're going to want to come to the roundup in 2023. And if you want more Western history by the WWHA, go follow them. You can find them at Wild West History Association on Facebook. You can find them on YouTube and on Instagram. A good friend... Uh, uh, Dave Guyton, he's over there running the Instagram page. And if you're an Instagrammer, when you love photos and you love the Instagram format, he's posting content there on a daily basis. So go see them. You join the WWHA, go to all the social media stuff, and you'll be covered in Western history. Um, so a book came my way, like it does many of you, through Facebook or social media. Um and a writer, and I'm going to be honest, I didn't know anything about him. Um, I'm new to Western history, and so I'm starting, I'm learning about more and more people. And one of them is today's guest, uh, D. Uh, Cordry. Is that correct, Cordry? Yes, sir. All right. D. Uh, D. Cordry. And D. is written a new book called Children of White Thunder. The Legacy of a Cheyenne Family from 1830 to 2020. Now, it is in bookstores now, um, and you can find it, again, at Amazon and booksellers, wherever you get your books. And if you live somewhere uh, where you can't get Amazon, like just go online and order it. Uh, you'll see the cover photo on the, on the podcast, and it's just a great way to get this book. Uh, I'm starting into the book now. I'm about page 25, so uh, we're going to talk about the way he's written the book. So welcome, sir. Appreciate you being here. Well, thanks. Thanks for asking me. I'm uh, uh, just thrilled to death. Well, Thank we're going we're gonna to gush over D a little bit as, in case you don't know who D is. Um, he's born and raised in Oklahoma. Um, he has been in law enforcement. He's actually retired law enforcement for nearly 25 years. And if anybody knows about me and you've heard me say, I'm a huge LEO supporter. So thank you, sir, for your service. We appreciate what you've done for us. Um, you are an expert on the history of Oklahoma law enforcement and the Cheyenne and Arapaho history. 
You're author of Children of White Thunder, Legacy of Cheyenne Family from 1830 to 2020. Alive if possible, dead if necessary. That that sounds like a good book. Uh, Deadly Business, Outlaw and Lawman, Map of Oklahoma. You've been the editor of the Oklahoma Journal in 1989 to 2000. Program speaker of Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, it says here that you were in the Oklahoma Highway Patrol Academy in 2009. <clears throat> the Oklahoma Historical Society an annual meeting in 1994. I mean, it goes on and on and on, and you're everywhere. You're everywhere. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you're you're not over here at the house. I, otherwise, I'd have you wash and wax in my truck. But <laughs> but you're everywhere. You've done a lot. Um, and again, thank you for your service. I know we talked in some pre-interviews. But, you know, I'm, I'm a huge LEO supporter, and we just can't thank you men and women enough for putting your life on the line to keep all of us, wherever we live, safe. So thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. You, you wrote a book, and you've been writing lots of books, but you wrote a book called Children of White Thunder. And before we get into it, like, I know that we talked about where you're from and all that, but, like, we're... You grew up in Oklahoma. You became a peace officer, a special agent. But what did what brought you into Western history? What got you to where you went, hmm, was it growing up in Oklahoma? Or was there something significant in your life to where you said, I've got to know more? I did not have an interest in history for uh, a long, long time. And I had gone to work. Uh, at the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, starting out as a records clerk while I was finishing college. And one of the job requirements to be an OSBI agent is you have to have a college degree. So I was working on that. And over time, I Worked, started working together with the public information officer who wanted to put some material together on the history of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, which was created in 1925. And as we started at the very beginning, when we had first uh, looked at some material that had been left in a box uh, from a long time ago, and there was... Uh, information there about Bill Tillman, the famous Oklahoma lawman. Well, that was it. That That's what really captured my interest. And uh, uh, one thing led to another. I, I got into uh, Oklahoma law and order history and the editor at, of the Chronicles of Oklahoma at the Oklahoma Historical Society said, whatever you find out on the history of the OSBI, put it together and bring it to me, and I'll publish it in the Chronicles of Oklahoma. And so that's what I did. Well, and of course, the written uh, uh, material that I provided to him was uh, very, very, uh, rough, and that's that's probably uh, 
uh, uh, it was not uh, it was not very good. But he took it as an editor and turned it into something that was actually readable and published it in 1985. And so that was a big learning process for me. And I saw right then and there, oh, well, this is what an editor does. And that, that really grabbed my attention and, and uh, things just kept progressing from there. But you didn't stop though. Like you could have just stopped because I only read a short amount of your, your background. I mean, you, You've been all over the place in history with Life and Times of Charles um, Arthur Floyd, um, mm-hmm. Killers of Flower Moon, you, uh, the Sand Creek, Sand Creek, and the tragic end at uh, Lifeway of a, a tragic end of a Lifeway. Like you, you've been busy, so it didn't. And you specialized. When did you begin to turn from just a generalized Western history? about Oklahoma and where you live and, and, and in general to where you began this turn into Native American history to where th- there had to be a turning point to that. Well, here's what happened. Uh, one of the uh, people that I worked with at o- Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, uh, we became uh, uh, quite good friends and still are, Harvey Pratt is Cheyenne Arapaho, and uh, he was my boss uh, off and on for uh, several years. But we've been good, good friends for 30 years or more. And and from time to time, he would start uh, mentioning uh, things about Cheyenne history and and some of his uh, ancestors. And then... Uh, one day, we're on a business trip driving to Denver from Oklahoma City, and we're uh, driving across the Oklahoma Panhandle, and we get uh, there to where you cross the border in Colorado. And, and looking around the countryside there, and on the eastern side of the highway, it's those flat plains just stretching forever. But on the western side of the highway, you start seeing more broken ground and uh, uh, mesas, and you can't see the Rocky Mountains yet, but it's, uh, so it's a, a very, very uh, interesting landscape, and Harvey begins telling me the story of his great-grandfather, Edmund Garrier, whose mother was full-blood Cheyenne. And his father was a white Frenchman uh, uh, trapper and trader from at, and had worked at Bent's Fort. Okay, well, what's Bent's Fort? Now I'm, I'm man, I'm just getting drawn into this. Uh, it's just quite a quite an interesting story and and uh, experience. And as we uh, drive on into Colorado, we go uh, near. Uh, La Junta and the uh, recreated Bent's Fort National Historic Site is nearby. So we stopped there. We're, uh, we stopped there for a few minutes and uh, walked down and into the the fort. 
and uh, take a, a little tour, you know, and and there by the gift shop area, a ranger is standing there. And Harvey hasn't said anything to any of the park employees about being related to the Bent family. Uh, but he had been telling me about this because his great-grandmother was Julia Bent. And so I, I, I'm, I uh, 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 start visiting with this park ranger and and I said, uh, oh, and I said, this is Harvey Pratt. You know, he's related to the Bent family. <laughs> and uh, this ranger kind of scratches his chin a little bit and, and uh, looks, he goes, oh, you're, you're Anne's son. And uh, I thought, oh, my, <laughs> this, <laughs> this, this, there's something to this. this there, there's something going on here. Because this, this uh, ranger uh, apparently knows this this whole family, all of this, and he did. He, and actually, he was uh, the ranger and and the park historian. But mm. anyway, that's how I got from that moment on. It just seems like as time went on, every time I would pick up a book and look in the index, there would be uh, William Garrier. The, the father or Edmund Garrier, the son, and then, uh, well, here's a book about Bisport, or here's a, another book, and, and then I, uh, uh, when I was doing that research on the history of the OSBI, I met people at the Oklahoma Historical Society and the archives and, and uh, uh, be, became friends with them, and, and uh, from time to time, uh, they, if they saw something they thought I might be interested in, they'd show it to me. And and then one day there was a a uh, historian from Colorado that was there uh, researching George Bent, and so I got to meet him. And just and you know how these things go, you know, just over the years you meet more and more people, and and you uh, find. Uh, more information, and so that's when uh, I never gave up on the law enforcement history, but but that's when I really got uh, drawn in and and totally uh, fascinated with uh, this uh, Cheyenne Arapahoe story that uh, was kind of centered on the Garriers and and uh, Bents and and uh, went out to you know had been to Sport. And then started going to some of the other sites uh, when I could, and um, so it's uh, been doing that for about the last twenty years. Well, well, when you said the thing about Ben's Fort and that employee, and he realized that he was Ann's great great grandson, like I was waiting for you to say, then you got something free, like you got free popcorn, or you got like discount, uh, on, uh, you know, uh, something. What? Something really great. Well, um, well even uh, uh, something much, much but more valuable, and that was uh, a uh, friendship or a, a, a contact with that ranger. That cool. And uh, I'm, I'm still in contact with him. Yeah. And and uh, so, you know, yeah, it, uh, I, I got something. <laughs> so let's, and, let's talk a little bit, because in your book, I do want to bring up Ben's Fort and the, the importance, because... It's near La Junta. 
It's on the Arkansas River. It was a major point of trade. It was also a major point of between people that were on, and, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'm really new into your book, that were traveling along the Santa Fe Trail and and trade was going on between the Native Americans and the European or the, or the white people coming from the East. And it became, it became a major trade stop, correct? So like, yeah, it's what very was the, what's the yeah. importance of Ben's? Like talk a little bit about Ben's Fort. Well, this was a uh, coming together as one of those points in history where cultures meet and initially it was in a good way. It was uh, uh, profitable and beneficial to both the uh, white Europeans and the, and the Cheyenne Arapahoes. And uh, something that I learned early on that uh, I don't think a lot of people appreciate is the Native American tribes didn't all get along with each other. There, they were uh, different tribes where it had been at war with each other over the years. And the Arkansas River out there was sort of a boundary with Comanche, Kaiba, Apache, and, and others south of the Arkansas River. And, and that was more or less their territory. And north of the Arkansas River, you had the Cheyenne, Arapahoes, and, and others. And uh, so when Bent built that uh, trading post out there, and this was uh, in the late 1820s and early 1830s, he was uh, uh, right there in the middle, hoping to uh, be able to do business with both. But, but he was also in a unique position to, at, uh, at times to play the role of a peacemaker because peace was good for business. And they had get-togethers there at Bensport, uh, and they would try to negotiate and, and uh, 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 create more peaceful uh, relationships. And the Santa Fe Trail came right through there, and the fur trappers would bring their goods. And then over time, the beaver pelts were uh, no longer in demand, but buffalo robes were. And uh, the ability of the Plains Indians to obtain uh, buffalo robes and process them and then trade them to uh, the white men, uh, particularly at Ben's Fort, and, and receive products in return, well, this, uh, the, all of this business enterprise uh, was beneficial and uh, the uh, commerce uh, made things better both... Uh, uh, militarily or socially or culturally, culture, culturally. <laughs> and uh, Bent had a lot to do with that. He had married 
a Cheyenne woman, full blood Cheyenne, owl woman, a daughter of White Thunder, who was the holy man. He was the the keeper of the sacred medicine arrows, and the he wasn't a chief. He was, but he was. Uh, uh, as important or that he was the most important person in the tribe uh, other than a chief. Mm -hmm. He was the holy man. And so when Bent married his daughter, Al Woman, well, that brought those two families together. It uh, uh, created this uh, connection between the Plain, a Plains Indian and a, and a white man and, and then their children, uh, Al Woman and William Bent's children, uh, George Bent became Edmund Garrier's best friend. Uh, William and Al Woman's daughter, Julia, married Edmund Garrier. And so as, as uh, Harvey Pratt would tell me more about Edmund Garrier and Julia Bent. And then uh, I started finding information. Uh, on one occasion, I went out to the Bent Sport National Historic Site, and that ranger, Craig Moore, uh, allowed me to look through uh, a couple of uh, file cabinet drawers where they had various. Uh, pieces of information that had been collected over the years, and I, you know, I uh, started started gathering information. Originally, it was just for fun. It was uh, interesting, fascinating, and but it came to the point finally where I just I thought, well, I'm going to have to write a book about this. I'm going to I need to write a book about Edmund Garrier. It's a fascinating story. And then after I worked on that for a while, then I realized, well, I can't tell his story if I don't tell his wife's story, Julia, and her brother, George, and the other brothers, and, and uh, well, and, and then you have all of these events that occurred during their lifetime. Right. Well, so I, so it turned into a pretty big project, but in the end, it gives you the scope of this history. And but in in this book, and uh, uh, there's particular people's names and faces connected to specific events and specific uh, geographical locations. And so you're you're not just talking about the Sand Creek Massacre. You're talking about these people, and and this is what occurred. This is what they did. This is what happened to them. And this is the effect that that had on them through the rest of their lives. Well, if you're wondering who we're talking to, we're talking to D. Uh, Cordry. He's written a book that's available on Amazon and booksellers near you called Children of White Thunder. Legacy of Cheyenne Family from 1830 to 2020. Um, the quick synopsis or, or the story is the biography of one extended Cheyenne family, the descendants of White Thunder, 
uh, a Cheyenne holy man who was keeper of the sacred medicine arrows. When, as I'm reading the book, the sacred medicine arrows plays a big part in it, in the story of it. What are the sacred medicine arrows? Well, these are arrows, wooden arrows that were uh, given to the Cheyenne people by Sweet Medicine, their cultural hero, uh, religious, um, it's part, part of their tradition, uh, spiritual tradition, uh, going back uh, centuries. And these four arrows have power and represent the uh, ability or, or provide the Cheyenne Arapahoes the ability to uh, uh, take care of themselves, feed themselves, be successful in uh, military campaigns. And the arrows are always in the possession of a arrow keeper, a holy man. And they, they're uh, handed, handed over from generation to generation to generation. And they still have them today. There's, there's an arrow keeper today that protects those arrows 24-7. And there always will be. So are they, are they up? Because in the book, it talks about how they're in a, in a sacred place. Like in the, mm -hmm. correct me, like a crevice in a mountain, like they're in a sacred place. Where are they kept now? Well, um, or can you say? Uh, uh, well, I, uh, I I only have general information. The a uh, lot of the information about the arrows is uh, private. It's uh, and I'm not Native American. It's not any of my business. Uh, oh, gotcha. Uh, but it it's common knowledge that. Uh, that here in Oklahoma, in western Oklahoma, there's um, a Cheyenne who, uh, it's always a man, who has the sacred arrows in, in uh, uh, somewhere here in western Oklahoma. Gotcha. And, and uh, so cool. um, what happened, in, and what I write about in uh, my book is how White Thunder was the keeper of the arrows in the uh, 1830s. But in 1838, uh, he is killed in battle when the Cheyenne Arapahoes uh, are in a battle with the Kiowa, Comanche, and Apache. And White Thunder is killed. And so the sacred arrows get um uh, passed on to a new uh, arrow keeper. And the names of these arrow keepers over the years are um, available or researchers have determined most of those names. It, it is probably an accurate list. However, it's that's the business of Cheyennes. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, uh, if 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 they choose to disclose that, you know that's that's their business. It's not mine. 
the sacred arrows at one time in the uh, 1830s were captured by the Pawnee when the Cheyenne were engaged in battle with the Pawnee. And the four arrows had been tied onto a lance to lead the Cheyenne into battle to uh, give them that power of the arrows. Uh, but in this particular situation, a Pawnee grabbed that lance and got away with it. And they had those arrows. And White Thunder made the decision that he was going to travel to that Pawnee village and ask for those arrows back. And uh, a handful of people went with him and, and they went up to this village and this is their enemy. And they, uh, and they're unarmed. White Thunder is unarmed and walks into that Pawnee village and they allow him and, and his small group to, uh, to enter and, uh, uh, unattacked. And they, they go into the Pawnee chief's lodge and, there's the arrows right there, and uh, he asks for them, and they negotiate, and uh, the Pawnee agrees uh, to give him back one of the arrows. And there's some other uh, different version of the stories. He may have been given two of them, mm -hmm. and they're allowed to leave. So White Thunder uh, has to make a new set of arrows because they have – they need four uh, uh, sacred arrows. And they perform a ritual ceremony. And well, now they have six. And the Sioux, their allies, recover another one of those four arrows. So they take the. Uh, the way the story goes, and again, this is just, we, you can't say uh, absolutely for certain, but uh, the way the story is told to me is the, the replacement arrows, the new arrows are kept as the sacred arrows. And the ones that were recovered, well, now they've, they've, They've been tainted, so to speak. Mm -hmm. and so they took those arrows and they took them to their sacred place at Bear Butte and uh, placed them there as an offering. Mm -hmm. And and they're they're mm -hmm. still there. Or, or of course, this was this was all back in the eighteen thirties. But hmm. that's uh, uh, and then there's uh, uh, the Northern Cheyenne have the sacred buffalo cap and the with uh, buffalo horns on it and and that's another uh, holy object and they still have it crazy i love that it just it, it's holding it, on to your past it, and well it is it, it's, it's you got uh, i mean here you've got a holy man you've got a cheyenne holy man you have these uh uh battles between various tribes 
And then, of course, as time goes on, it's, it becomes battles between Plains Indians and U.S. soldiers. And, uh, and then, it, then as time goes on, there, there are treaties and there are reservations and there's allotment and uh, all of these other uh, things. And, and uh, Edmund Garrier and his wife, Julia Bent, lived through all of that and had, uh, um, uh, Edmund was an a, a interpreter and was present at a lot of these uh, treaties, uh, negotiations, and, and uh, other important events. And he, sometimes he was there and, and uh, witness these things, or he he had other first or second hand knowledge, and and uh, so it. Uh, the more I found out about it, I, I was just totally uh, fascinated and and uh, very fortunate, very very fortunate. I'm so grateful with the friends that I've made and the contacts and people who just. Uh, uh, knew that I was uh, researching this particular area and they come across something and they'd contact me and say, hey, are you interested in this? Well, well, yes, I'm not only am I interested, I was kind of looking for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've just been, it's just been a, a, a blessing to have uh, the, this community out there and uh, of uh, and and you know it was the uh, same kind of thing with the law and order history the the old west you know i've i've told people over and over again there's more lawman and outlaw history uh in oklahoma than anywhere else and uh, if if somebody disputes that, I'll have we'll have we can have a nice discussion about it. I'm I'm, uh, but I think my uh, I think I can present my facts to prove my uh, uh, case that uh, there was uh, plenty of action uh, between lawmen and outlaws in Oklahoma and Indian Territory. And one here's one of my favorite little uh, things I like to throw out there is train robberies were still going on in Oklahoma in 1923. Hmm. Uh, That's when the last train robbery happened. It was up in Osage County in the Osage Hills in northern Oklahoma. And the Al Spencer gang robbed a train. And uh, that, to me, that just blows my mind. That was 1923. And then the next year, there were 52 bank robberies in Oklahoma, an average of one per week. And that's what prompted the governor to uh, ask the legislature to authorize a state, statewide law enforcement agency uh, to, tr- to uh, be able to track down these bank robbers across the jurisdictional lines within the state. And uh, that's, what they, that's what they did. In 1925, they created the Oklahoma State Bureau of Identification and Investigation. 
And it was the very first state-level law enforcement agency in the United States that combined the um, somewhat scientific side of law investigation, the identification division with field agents or rangers. And now we take that for granted. We've all, all of us in our lifetimes, it's just uh, uh, expected that a police department's going to have a, a fingerprint office and keep fingerprint records. But when the Oklahoma legislature created the OSBI, the, it ordered all law enforcement agencies to start fingerprinting everybody they arrested and send uh, a copy to the OSBI, to the state files. Right. And uh, the uh, even the federal government didn't start uh, doing that till 1929. Hmm. So, so the, uh, the State Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation uh, now today is uh, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. And our 100th anniversary is only a couple of years away. And so I'm participating a little bit with uh, some other retired agents and, and other employees and we're uh, trying to uh, gather things together and see what we can put together to recognize that 100 uh 100 years of history. Well, if you're wondering who we're talking to, we're talking to D. Cordry. He's written a book called Children of White Thunder. It's on uh, it's on sale now, booksellers near you and Amazon. When you wrote the book, you I'm sure that you went and contacted many different tribes, many different nations within the area. What was their reaction to you, or did you bring your your friend along to help open the doors and and say, don't close a door on him, he wants to write the truth? Well, a little of both, Uh, but uh, my friend, Harvey Pratt, is a Cheyenne chief. Uh, He became a chief in, uh, I think, in 1992, uh, in... uh, but he's only he's only been retired from the OSBI for uh, not for very long. But he's quite an accomplished artist, just internationally recognized uh, uh, artist. Uh, but yeah, Harvey would uh, uh, open the door. He'd inter- he'd uh, introduce me to people, but I had to earn their trust. I had to uh, show them that I knew what I was doing. And I was willing to share any information I had with them, and and I did, and so it it was uh, it's been very successful. But it's a slow process with anybody, regardless of of uh, who they are or where you go. Uh, you know, it it's uh, uh, you're not gonna uh, not not always gonna get something right away, and so uh, I, I I tell you. A lot of really good material is located at the Oklahoma Historical Society in the Archives and Manuscripts Division. And the people that work there are just wonderful, and and they work very hard. 
and I really had a uh, quite been quite fortunate that uh, a gentleman there that's now retired and but was in charge of the archives for years and years, and he knows where uh, uh, most of the information is. I visit with him frequently, still do, and and uh, he's always got uh, great uh, suggestions of where to look for something. And uh, uh, I was over there one day, and and uh, Bill still goes back there. Bill Welge, uh goes back as a volunteer and, uh, uh, and to help out there in the archives, and. He brings out a couple of boxes from one of the collections, and he says, well, uh, take a look in here. You might find something. And uh, almost the first folder that I open up has these original handwritten letters hmm. written by George Bent. And I I just was stunned. I said, Bill, but they, these are original George Bent letters and he he didn't know that didn't they you know they don't know what's in every single folder you know they mm -hmm. they know that this is certain part of western history and and so on and uh so then I I hold up one of those letters and it's the letter where George tells somebody about his grandfather White Thunder and uh, mm -hmm. and the words and I and I put this in my book, and and uh, and his words and how he says that that his grandfather was the Cheyenne holy man, not a chief. And uh, I just uh, stand in you know to hold that in your hands. Uh, of course, uh, you know when you're working in the archives, you wear gloves. And uh, uh, it, was, it was a special moment for, uh, I don't know, for, for me, those kind of things uh, uh, are kind of significant to me. They, they may not be to other people, but that's what this book, that's, that's where the information comes from that's in this book. And, of course, everything's footnoted. There's a total of like 32 pages of footnotes. Everything is footnoted, uh, bibliography. Uh, uh, I uh, really worked hard to include as much context material and to make it as uh, useful to researchers as possible and try to make it as readable as possible. And it's probably a little rough you know here and there but i had some great great help with uh, uh editors and professional people that know a lot more than i do about how you're supposed to write this kind of book and and uh, so i'm just very grateful i've been very lucky i've been very very fortunate well i'm gonna ask you a question that i asked dr gary roberts about his book about uh, Doc Holliday, Legend of Doc Holliday. Thinking about your book in your mind right now, if I gave you a time machine, what period in your book would you go back to to see and witness firsthand? Well, I would definitely go to the time in... Uh, 1878, when 
The Southern Cheyenne were living on their assigned reservation here in northwest Oklahoma. And the Northern Cheyenne, and this is two years after the defeat of Custer at Little Bighorn, and the Northern Cheyenne had been sent down here to the Southern Reservation. And in 1878, the Cheyenne and Arapahoes and other Plains Indians who had been uh, captured in 1875 and made prisoners and sent off to a military prison in Florida and held as prisoners of war for three years. And they had just returned. They had been released and returned and to the Southern Reservation. And so you had all of these, the, these uh, different people uh, that were there together in the summer of 1878. Uh, and the Northern Cheyenne didn't like it here. They decided they were going to go back to the, their uh, Northern homeland. And they did. They, uh, uh, 300-some left without, a, without permission and were pursued by soldiers across northern Oklahoma, across Kansas, and like it was, some called it the Dull Knife Raid, and some call it the Northern uh, Exodus. But I would, I would have liked to have been there at... Uh, on the reservation there at Darlington and Fort Reno uh, while uh, things were building up to that point. And Edmund Garrier was right there, he and George Bent, and, and Edmund was the interpreter when these uh, Cheyennes were talking to officials from the Indian agency and from Fort Reno. And he was right there. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's where I would go. Yeah. That's that, that would be at the top of my list. Okay. That, I was hoping you were, it was going to be something like that. Cause I was afraid you were going to maybe go someplace that you'd written about and you knew everything all about, but to see that on a visual side, you know, would you want to partake into it? Of course, that would change history because it would imply bring somebody new into it. Or would you just, from a visual side, want to stand from a distance? Oh, I would want to observe. I mean, yeah, your your natural inclination would would you you want to jump in there and get involved? But no, I I uh, uh, I would love to uh, to be there taking notes. <laughs> yeah. Taking notes. <laughs> But, uh, uh, but, you know, as far as geographical places, well, uh, Ben's Fort, or there's another wonderful, beautiful place near Ben's Fort on the south side of the river that's called Boggsville. And there's a, a, a historic site there. And uh, I, I won't carry on and on about the, these two people, but uh, Thomas Boggs. Uh, his house, his home is still there. The original home has been maintained. And then the Prowers house is still at that uh, historic site. 
and it was on a, a shoot of the Santa Fe Trail came right through there and and uh, uh, and so when I went there I've been there a couple of times and it is to me it was uh, one of those places where you just get a special feeling when you mm-hmm. you uh, walk along there in uh, the same places where Kit Carson and uh, members of his family, he and his children, the Bents, Mary Bent was there, you know, you're, uh, so it's, yeah, I'd go there for sure. For me, in your book, it would be Bents Fort. I would love to see the wagon trains coming in and going, the, the trading that's going on, the discussion of what's going yep. on just to see because it, it it's I haven't been there yet but I'm going to but I've seen it you know like on Google Earth and it's a beautiful spot mm-hmm. and I'd love mm-hmm. to see all that action you know going on and people trading mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. the cells yep. and the site yep. oh the my god be yeah. fantastic uh, the uh, military used Ben's Fort from time to time and yeah, uh, so uh, in uh, different time periods there would be uh, soldiers camped out uh, outside the gates and over here. And then over there, there would be uh, a Cheyenne village. Crazy. And yeah, that you're right. You're right. That would just be, uh, but you know, you've got those forts in Kansas, uh, Fort Hayes, Fort Learned, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, uh, earlier this year, I got to, uh, make a little trip out that way and, and went by uh, where Fort Wallace was located. And now they have a, a excellent museum, just the Fort Wallace Museum. It uh, is kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But my goodness, it is a first-class, top-quality museum. And I, so I got to stop there and, and everything. And uh, there's... Uh, um, I can't wait to be able to travel again across, uh, back across uh, northwest Oklahoma and around the Panhandle and out here in the Texas Panhandle and and over into Kansas and western Kansas. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just, I, I love it. I love the geography. You know, you're you get out there. In uh, eastern Colorado, near yep. the Kansas border, well, you're not in the Rocky Mountains. No, this uh-uh. is flat plains. I've worked out but there. I like that geography. Yeah, I, I do like. Too. I got a chance to work in a spot called Etiquette, Colorado, which is on the eastern plains. And the guy that I was with, he's like, oh, "It's just boring. It's just boring and flat." And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Look how beautiful this is." We've got just a couple of minutes left. Are you working on something new? Yes. I've got uh, uh, some projects uh, following up on some of this Cheyenne history. And there's uh, one person uh, or, um, that I write about towards the end of my book who's uh, a Cheyenne that was killed and buried out in northwest Oklahoma. Don't know the exact location, but the remains were uh, uh, uncovered and uh, uh, recovered by archaeologists and studied for years and years. And they nicknamed him Sandman. And 
uh, after 30 years, the uh, the remains were reinterred and uh, or buried at the uh, cemetery at Fort Supply uh, out in uh, northwest Oklahoma. And this, uh, the remains uh, had uh, artifacts with him, with Sandman. And there was damage to him. He was probably killed in battle. And the and and I I'm trying to learn uh, everything I can. I was so fascinated with that, uh, and uh, I'm hoping to meet uh, some of the archaeologists that worked on that and uh, find out what uh, what they discovered. And and uh, but I write what I know about it. I I have written about in my book and. So that's another. That's a project I'm working on, and just some other uh, uh, sort of uh, mysteries, and and then uh, uh, I'm just constantly meeting people. People contact me and want to tell me more about uh, the Washita and uh, things yeah. of that nature. And, and um, well, get on but them. you know, uh, if Mike can, if uh, if we got just a little bit of time. Not much. I was maybe a minute. If I could, I want to. I just want to briefly. I I really want to uh, read just uh, very briefly something that I wrote in here. This is well, one of my favorite things. Make her quick. And it's it concerns Georgia Bent's daughter, uh, Julia Bent Prentice, and she. This is something that she wrote one time, and she said. We have these camp meetings every year at different agencies. Last year, we held one at Red Rock, Oklahoma, the Kiowa, Comanches, Rapahoes, and Wichitas. It takes a good, smart interpreter for this place. Our Baptist missionaries here among the Cheyennes request me to fill this important position. I interpret for over two or 3,000 Indians. And then she says, what greater thing or better thing could I do for my people? And these seven simple sentences demonstrated her above-average ability to write clearly and provide necessary details. She expressed her pride of being a good, smart interpreter who filled an important position. She demonstrated her pride in her family history when she signed her name, Julia Bent apprenticed and then she revealed her heart with what greater thing or better thing could I do for my people and awesome her great grandfather white thunder would have understood mm-hmm. and well, that's that's just that that's how I feel uh, uh, about these people that's the that's who these people are, and I'm trying to tell that story. Gotcha. Well, we're talking to D. Cordry. He's written a book called Children of White Thunder. It is the legacy of a Cheyenne family from 1830 to 2020. You can find it at booksellers near you. Of course, I want to thank my friends over at the WWHA, the Wild West History Association, and uh, also uh, the gang at the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. If you can find me on uh, 
You can find me on uh, iTunes. Please leave a rating and a review. Uh, that help, helps with distribution. Also, you can find the podcast. If you have somebody who doesn't understand uh, iTunes or Spotify, you can find these podcasts on YouTube. And again, the same thing. Subscribe, give a rating and a review, and um, it does help with distribution. As always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Safe travels, and we'll see you soon.